Hi, I'm Ed Romaine, the Chief Marketing Officer of Cargo Global, and this is Mobilizing Culture, a new podcast exploring the ever-changing world of advertising and how new waves of mobile technology and digital advertising impacts the human mind both positively and negatively. Before I started at Cargo, I worked in magazines for almost 10 years, so the industry is very near and dear to my heart. Today I got to speak with two exceptional creative individuals whom represent two very important segments of the print world, beauty and fashion. Hi, I'm Leah Weyer. I am the Chief Beauty Director at Hearst, and I oversee the beauty editorial for Cosmo, Seventeen, Good Housekeeping, Woman's Day, and Red Book. And James Demolay. I'm James Demolay, and I am the Style Director for Cosmopolitan and Seventeen magazines. In the season one finale of Mobilizing Culture, we talk about the magazine industry, specifically how the incorporation of digital and multiple user platforms forces even the biggest publishing companies, like Hearst, and their titles, like Cosmopolitan, to rethink their approach. You don't want to just continue to just do what's always worked. They're spending too much brain power reflecting on how things used to be, and it will, it will never get to that place again. If Leah and James's names sound familiar, perhaps it's because you're like me and couldn't get enough of last year's reality series, So Cosmo, on E!, where they starred as two of the lead personalities. That's what cute. if I told you you had to spend the day in Coney Island? Coney Island? Oh my god! Don't worry, I don't speak to them about whether Evan and Deandra are still a couple in this episode, although I wanted to. With a giant shift in the way content is being produced and distributed, I wanted to understand how they balance print and digital, what scares them, how social influencers are changing the game, and how they incorporate new tech and data into their strategies. These two sit at the center of a creative world that has been, in a sense, overturned by technology. I wanted to know when they started reapproaching their practice with a digital-first mentality, and how magazines have to tell the same story across several platforms to satisfy their audiences. When you first started doing this, did it feel like in the beginning you were just creating a story that you could flip through uh, via pages, and then all of a sudden you had to worry about how that also translated on the website? Do you remember that moment, or do you remember feeling pressured by it? For me, I think it was probably like 2010 because that's when, you know, Emily Weiss got really popular with Into the Gloss. Emily Weiss left her day job at Vogue to launch Into the Gloss, the beauty website that's given readers a peek into the cabinets of actresses like Shailene Woodley and models like Gigi Hadid. Leandra Medine got really popular with Man Repeller. Hi, I'm Leandra Medine. I'm the founder of Man Repeller. It's a humorous website for serious fashion. Eva Chen had sort of pioneered this for the print editors really just owning first Twitter and then Instagram and then everything else. And that's when I think for me, particularly with Eva, because at the time she was uh, beauty director of Teen Vogue, you were like, wow, this is a peer in beauty who is owning this space. I sort of knew nothing about it at the time. So it was very intimidating. Like I remember sending my first tweet and being so nervous to send my first tweet. It means something so much more. Yes. And it's, you know, you realize now it's like so silly. But the world for me changed for sure in 2010 because that's when all of those girls really started to just change the way content was being produced. And do you have to worry about um, how that content is being distributed across those platforms now for all the titles you work on? I mean, even when we talk about retouching, there's a discussion of how is the picture going to look both on the printed page and also how is it going to look online. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's retouching that we do that has to be 
appropriate for both because they're, most of the people are going to see the pictures on Instagram first, and that's where they're going to see what the content looked like. And so there is a discussion of, I mean, it's like the magazine isn't square, but there is a whole discussion of how are the pictures going to look online. Mm-hmm. And I think... Even when you're on set, you're thinking that... Yeah, I mean, in terms of how the how the set is and how the lighting is and all of that, that like it, it's a discussion of both. How mm-hmm. will, how will it be? Uh, because I think I think early on working with celebrities, I realized that them promoting the work online and on their own media channel only helps out our brand, and it also has a direct relationship with to how the how the magazine sells on the newsstand, and so the the onset experience actually has to be, go in a certain way in order for them to promote it online, which is necessary in order for you know the magazine to continue. Beauty, I would argue, was faster to adopt technology stuff than fashion. Like fashion mm-hmm. still, some the, houses still aren't doing anything digital. Yeah, I mean, I think the fashion community was much slower to to adopt that. Whereas I think like, I remember when Emily Weiss first started that it was like, it's a major shift that has been created in beauty that I think fashion, it took much longer. And some, yeah, some designers still don't get involved. Now that readers of the magazines have multiple points of entry from which to consume the content, connecting with them needs to happen in all the places they happen to be. Connecting, you're usually connecting online. You're Mm -hmm. usually connecting through like a direct message on Instagram or something that's digital. So you have to assume that those people are possibly reading both, reading just one. I mean, you don't really know where it's coming. So I personally do think that for the magazines I work on, it is a brand first mentality because what happens at the brand, and I guess for me, that's print first, (laughs) magazine first, is going to sort of channel itself outward. Um, But, you know, even the people who are solely responsible for digital and social, you know, they have to think about how that is going to be reflected from the print editors, you know. So they have a lot more freedom and a lot more boundary pushing that they can do on their end. And then we have to always kind of try to meet in the middle a little bit because particularly with advertisers, you have to be careful as to how far you can push it in both worlds. These days, the way a magazine brand transacts with advertisers varies based on the platform. Brands want more organic integrations than ever before, so they seem authentic to the consumer and with more editorial precision applied. How conscious are you about advertiser needs when you start to tell a story? Now there's an entirely new type of storytelling that falls under this native category, which Can you tell people that are listening that don't know what native is, what it is? Native is essentially paid content that is editorially produced. So in the past, if an advertiser wanted something to look like an edit piece in a magazine, it was technically called an advertorial. And the marketing teams would put those together. They'd write it. They'd use either stock art or they'd shoot it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like what I used to do. Those are over. (laughs) (laughs) So now that responsibility is now on the edit teams because these brands want the content to feel more real and they want it to feel as well-researched, well-written, well-produced. As beautiful as the stories you're creating everywhere else. Yes. 
and they want it to fit seamlessly into the magazine so that, you know, and it's slugged a certain way. It's there's, you know, it's it's revealed that these people bought this space, but my team is responsible for writing that. And so a lot of times that entails, you know, going to the company and sitting down to be briefed and, you know, really being treated like a marketer. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of wear two hats. So in that native perspective, 100% the advertiser is being taken into consideration. To dive a little deeper into this idea of native advertising, I called Michael Ventura, CEO of leading creative agency Subrosa and friend of Cargo's. One of the first examples I think of when when you ask, like, where did we first kind of see this organic message and this uh, omni-channel approach work well is not for a commercial brand. You know, the first example that came to mind is actually the, uh, the first run of the Obama presidency back in 2008. Um, I think that they really approached social and storytelling um, from such an omnichannel, such a, a, a immersive way, um, and really kind of played on the, the right emotional touch points that people were looking for. Um, and we're giving the right depth of conversation in the right channel. You know, what you were encountering from them in social media wasn't going to be as deep as what you were going to get on a dot-com or in a TV spot or some other things, but that was the point, right? It was, it was, there was a layered story that was being rolled out and it had a lot of humanity in it and it was eliciting engagement from people. So, you know, while there are probably other high watermarks to point to, for me, that's, that's definitely one that, you know, is almost a decade old at this point, but really kind of showed that people were ready and listening uh, to, uh, to try to embrace something more um, diverse than what they were used to. With more and more change happening in consumer behavior, and in their case, reader behavior, the future is hard to predict, which can be a challenging situation for an editor. So what Cargo does, which I talked to you guys about on the phone, is we help advertisers, but also publishers, monetize the audiences that they have on mobile where a lot of the audiences are moving. What scares you guys about where the readers are going or what they're doing next? You know, for such a long time, the print product was, you know, the place that got all the funding for shoots and, you know, sort of the very you know, most important thing. And that's starting to sort of equal out. You know, you see the digital side doing really large productions and doing, you know, just similar things to us in a, in a different way. Um, it doesn't scare me. I think it is sort of just the way that the business is going. People are consuming all the time in different ways. Um, but I think that on the sort of like unpredictableness of everything is a little concerning to me because you can't predict what's going to happen and where you should be and how you should respond and get ahead of the ball. I'm always just like the person who needs to be planning and looking ahead and like, what should I do right now to position myself later? And it's just, that's really difficult. You just don't know how it's going to, how it's going to end up or how it's going to shake out. With new platforms and apps being created every day, there's no real end in sight and an ever-growing amount of content can be overwhelming. You're actually trying to create as much content as you can. Yeah. Does the content pendulum swing back the other way in your minds at some point? Uh, There's, It's like, a, it's so insane. Yeah. I mean, even my own friends' Insta stories, I can't get through. You just can't. It's like a, it's like a bad DVR nightmare where you can't get through your saved shows. You know, <laughs> oh my god! But then those people, you really don't have. You to know, you always want to clear your cachet if yeah, you're yeah, yeah. if you have compulsion disorder. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think 
there are definitely moments on set where I'm like, this is the best that it could possibly be given the constraints. And so there's other moments where I was like, whoa, I can't believe we did this. This was incredible. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think working on multiple titles, that's helpful because then you're like, what's well, on to the next projects, on to the next thing. But also I think because we are the printed magazine, we're meant to sort of pause for a second and be like, is this the best it could possibly be? Mm-hmm. It's not meant to be lost in 6,000 images. It's, you know, it's it's meant to mean and something And the more. truth is that if you if you are somebody who is paying for a print product and you're actually reading it, I think you do expect that experience to be different than what it is when you're reading something on your phone or you're reading something online. You want it to, I, I think you're reading it because you're taking a moment to yourself. You're having like you kind of want to be inspired. You I think. want to be inspired in a you, way that you can't be in on other pla- in other places. Yeah, right? you want to take in something that is smart, something that is really well researched, well shot. I mean, it can that can be visually or you know from, in, from a words perspective, but you do expect that experience to be different. And so, being an editor in the industry today means not holding on to traditional forms of creative expression but adopting new, innovative approaches to storytelling. The magazine editors who spend time being nostalgic of how magazines used to operate are the people that are not going to be successful today. I totally agree with you. And so, the and we've seen a lot of turnover at, at magazines. And so you see some teams leave and some of the team stays on. And the people who are able to decide and adopt a new way of thinking are the ones that are the most successful and also the easiest to collaborate with. Anyone who wants to tell you of how it used to operate is wasting your time. And also they're spending too much brain power reflecting on how things used to be. And it will it will never get to that place again. Do you think that, that, that people are still doing that a lot? I say all the time, like I'm kind of more of a manager of realistic expectations that sometimes these people are coming to the table with ideas. And I'm like, well, I have to do two covers with that celebrity and eight pictures for the story. And that's not going to be possible. What do you want to well, do? Well, you get crunched. I feel like to Leah's earlier point, you're not yeah. just an editor anymore. You have to have this marketing hat on too to be, sort of be like, what's going to sell? What are people going to be interested in? What's going to please the advertiser? So you have all these things happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then you have to distribute it across this entire ecosystem of places where people are following you and paying attention. I mean, there are definitely leaders who have let go of the preciousness of the old days and have just accepted the fact that you have to make fast decisions. The more layers, the worse off it's going to be. Let's empower people to make these decisions. But there are probably less of them than there should be. The faster that people can sort of adopt that mentality, I think the happier that they'll actually be working because you're not trying to constantly fight this battle that you're never going to win anymore. One factor that continues to impact the industry is the inclusion of tastemakers, influencers, bloggers, and social media personalities whose large followings are often in the hundreds of thousands or even millions. Ah, to be famous today. Fashion and beauty in general is like a very cool kids at the table sort of thing where everybody sort of thinks they're almost better than everyone else, right? Right. There's this like very catty thing to it, which is like fun in a way. But in another way, I feel like lately, particularly with the emergence of these tastemakers or influencers, et cetera, there's been this sort of clink in the armor that's had to be addressed, right? I remember like the first season of seeing bloggers front row at fashion shows. And I remember I'm seated with editors who were like, oh, I can't believe like what what business do they have here? You know, like they, they're not classically trained like we are. But I look over and I'm like, they're having the most fun. And so there was this epiphany that I realized that like, well, they're here anyway. We're all in the same room. 
and we're all being evaluated the same. And the designers are putting them front row and we have to just adopt that their opinion is valuable as well. What has happened in the last couple of years is like they're just as important, if not more important in a lot of cases than some people. It feels much lighter now that I do think that like the shift in ego is helpful. I think not just in our industry, but you know, outside of it. After speaking with Leah and James, it was clear that the people sitting at the creative center of the publishing industry are still treading lightly around how to really adopt technology. Are you seeing new things in beauty, and I'd want to ask the same profession, that you want to get ahead of from a technology perspective, if you're looking at trends and how people are consuming content? AR never worked, in my opinion, right? That was like a thing for a minute. It was a thing for a minute. We experimented with that. And You know, some people still say that there's a life there that is going to happen, happen, but I don't know. I I don't really believe it. I just I I don't think it's there. What do you think, James? It's tricky because I think that in fashion, they do try to introduce these new ideas of, say, like the buy now, we are now business, where the clothes are going down the runway and you're able to buy them that minute. But it's still flawed. It still doesn't quite make sense. In any corporate environment, data is key to creating competitive sales strategies and planning for the future. But even with new and improved data on consumer behavior, there are no guarantees that a cover or a feature will work in the way that the data predicts. I, th- I think one of the difficult things with magazines that a lot of times people do wouldn't be reliant on the data of like how many did that sell if that specific celebrity sold a lot then let's do her again and I think that trying to get people away from that a bit I think we do better work there are definitely moments when it's like that worked that one time to try to replicate that moment again is impossible let's try to create a new moment and so there are sometimes where we'll put someone on the cover that is a guaranteed you know, top seller, and it doesn't do well at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's no there's no guarantees. And so the more freedom we have creatively given the constraints, I think the better work we do. And so in moments like that, I'm like- You I, don't want to be thinking about data in the I, creative process. Not like that. It's the same way that a celebrity, they can't predict if their movie is going to do well, regardless mm-hmm. of how well their movies have done in the past, and regardless of who else is involved. And so I think there are these moments when it's like, well, what can we do given the constraints? Like if we have this talent and we have to shoot three covers with them on that day, and how do, how do we get the most out of that moment rather than- Let's try to replicate what went well for a different month. Like James said, like you don't want to just continue to just do what's always worked because people get bored by that. You know, you want some sort of continuity, but you want to really push yourself to think about what's another way to tell this story. Thinking visually helps with that, but also, you know, just kind of not resting on the fact that it worked before or that like a cover line was super successful in like 2001. So like, let's do it again this time. It's like, that's not how people, Yeah, it's just, it's just not relevant now. Right. You have to really get away from the comfort zone. I feel for creatives and I've talked to other creatives on the show who said that the over-reliance on data almost stifles the creative process. And I would imagine you're working on multiple titles, you have all of the like pressures of the newsstand, et cetera, and you're still trying to be your best creative self. So if you are so focused on the data, you can't allow your own artistry come through, right? That's why you're doing what you're doing. So it's I get that pressure of that. Early on at Cosmo, I remember there was some article, and now I can't even think of what it was. We, you know, we get the reader surveys back, and it rated very poorly. And Joanna was like, well, it wasn't meant to appeal to them. It wasn't meant to appeal to everyone. The point of that was to sort of introduce a new idea into their life. But it's not the thing that they already know about. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, it didn't resonate with them because that was the introduction. So there are these moments sometimes where it's like – 
some sometimes maybe the closer to conceptual for the moment. But maybe that's the moment that it's introducing the idea to them. So it doesn't have to be the thing that they're the most familiar with. And so that's why I think sometimes you do have to disregard the data because they're telling you what do they already know. And the point of the magazine is to is to provide new inspiration and new ideas. Yeah, like in 2016, I think we did that big portfolio on all of the non-traditional models. So like May Musk, we oh, yeah. profiled. I actually and, remember that. Um, Hari Neff and all Candace these. Hathine. Yeah. And and I'm sure that had we surveyed that story, and I don't even think we did, but that it would have tanked because nobody understood that moment, you right. know. But now, almost two years later, we're in that moment, like deeply. And so Mae Musk is just a cover girl, cover girl now, you know. And, and like Hari Neff is in fragrance campaigns exactly. that I saw in Charleston, South Carolina, which I was like, I cannot what believe. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. But yeah, when you're the intro is always going to be liked less than when it becomes a mass event. Do you think that it's harder to be innovative when people have so much access to content? No. That's a great answer. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I because I I think it it forces you as an artist to think more creatively and to to move things along from what you're already seeing to try to introduce new ideas. But no, I think I think there's also a lot of bad content. And so much bad content. I think that people aren't even realizing, especially artists, that by looking at ugly images or looking at things that are poorly done, it still is it still is getting in your mind and you're still it still is influencing you. And so I feel like we have a greater responsibility to manage what content you're consuming because the bad stuff is still going to get in there and you know you won't even realize it. I want to thank my guests Leah Wire and James Demolay. Go find them on social media. You can follow me at Leah Wire. You can follow me on Instagram at James Demolay. You can also find them on reruns of my favorite show, So Cosmo on E. And if you want to hear more from Leah, stay tuned for My Beauty Chat, a new daily podcast format that you can ask Alexa for each day. This is the last episode of season one of Mobilizing Culture. Be sure to go back to any of the episodes you might have missed and remember to rate and review us on iTunes. We will be back with more mobilizing culture this winter, but for now, you can follow me on Instagram at ebromaine and Cargo at Cargo Mobile for industry news and next season sneak peeks. For now, I'm Ed Romaine signing off, and if you need me, call me on my cell phone.